The title of the sermon this morning, God Judges Israel for Bad Theology. And you won't find those actual words in your Bible. So the title meant to be a little provocative this morning. We don't talk much about theology in our culture anymore. Uh, It tends to turn people off or put them to sleep. It sounds like an old term. And yet, everybody is a theologian. Everybody does theology. You're doing it right now. You are doing theology. You may not be sitting with a theological book open in front of you, but if your Bible's open in front of you, you do have a theological book open in front of you. But even when you leave here today and you're not hearing a sermon anymore, you are doing theology. Theology is truth about God and His activity. Theology is truth about God, who He is, and what He does. When we talk about studying theology in a a classical or classroom sense, then we talk about maybe a systematic theology. How many people have like, read through like Wayne Grudem's systematic theology or taken a class with Pastor Andy? That is just truth about God organized into topics, and you go through systematically. But we all do theology. I always cringe when I hear somebody about to make some public statement, and they preface the statement with, well, I'm no theologian, but here I go. And as if that lets them off the hook. If we're going to make truth statements about God and His work in the world, we better make sure that they're true truth statements and not opinion. And we do that by keeping ourselves immersed in His revelation instead of conjuring up what we think are truths about God from inside our own heart or mind. We want to saturate our mind with God's truth from His Word so that when we go through the day and think about all the particular situations we find ourselves in, that we will interpret those situations the way God would. We would respond to people the way God would have us respond. We would think about situations the way God would think about them. Certainly this is a process, right? This is a process. Anyone in the room who says, I absolutely all the time think the thoughts that God thinks would be fooling themselves, it would be rather arrogant. And yet, it would also be arrogant to say, oh, well, who could, who could really know? Who could really do this? God is so much higher than us and His ways are above our ways. That's true, that's scriptural, but that's not an excuse for not being diligent to have good theology. So I want to make the case this morning that God judged Israel for Bad theology. For bad theology. Adam and Eve tempted uh, to do theology apart from God's revelation. Think about that. That's kind of where it all went wrong for mankind. They had good theology. 
at the start. The best theology. God made them man and woman fully adult and filled their hearts and minds with the truth. They're the only two who kind of got to bypass the whole process of being an infant and having truth taught to you incrementally as you grow up. They were made adult, and they, their minds were fully saturated with good theology. It's all they knew. There wasn't any time yet for bad theology. They trusted God. They trusted His revelation. They trusted His truth. Whoever God said He was, that's what they believed about God. And whatever God told them they were, that's what they believed. And what they were supposed to do and their purpose, that's how they lived. Until another voice came in. The the voice of Satan, the tempter, the deceiver. And think about what the temptation was. It was really to replace God's theology with bad theology with wrong theology. When theologians talk about theology, we'll say general theology is just the truth about God and all of His activity in the world. But when we use the term theology proper, we're talking about the Godhead Himself, what God is like. So sometimes when we say theology, we're talking about God and His nature, and sometimes when we talk about theology... We're talking about the whole ball of wax, okay? Satan tempted man and woman to corrupt both theology and theology proper. Think about the temptation. Did God really say? In other words, is, is God really a truthful being? Can, can you trust him? He was tempting them to not think of God as trustworthy. And once you believe God is not trustworthy, all bets are off, right? You could have all the revelation in the world, but if God's not trustworthy, then eh, not so sure. Maybe I need to augment this or supplement this or do some of my own thinking and replace God's thoughts with my own thoughts. They also tempted, were tempted to not believe God's theology about themselves, we call theology about men anthropology. Anthropology, this anthros, man, the study of man. They started to believe that they could function apart from God. They were tempted to not believe God's truth about reality, about life and death, and we saw that last week in the Easter sermon. We live in a culture now that's dominated by materialism, That all there is is the material world, so the world of science can't answer the question, what is life and death? And and we saw from, in that video, if you were here last Sunday, the scientific community speaking with their own mouth, admitting, we don't know what is alive and what is dead. And this is what happens when you detach from God's theology. You have to make up your own theology. And so you begin to interpret reality apart from God, and you make up a whole theology about reality that isn't true. Notice the difference between good theology and bad theology is that good theology starts with God. 
And so we call that God-centered theology. God is truth, so all truth must emanate from God as its source. Bad theology we call man-centered theology. It starts with man, and maybe it'll grab some information from God, but then it'll even take that information from God and put it through man's process of judging and deciding if I'll accept or reject or tinker with God's theology. We have all inherited this sin nature that tempts us to do theology with ourselves as the starting point. We all have the ability, even in Christ, to either do good theology or bad theology. And for all of us, our day is really a mixture of good theology and bad theology. And the process of sanctification can be described in this way, Dying to the old man who wants to do theology from a man-centered perspective. Dying to that and ever increasing in God-centered theology. Letting the word of God be sovereign over my thinking. Even the way that came out of my mouth was somewhat man-centered. Letting the word of God be sovereign over me. It's like the old conundrum in marriage where the wife says, I'm going to let my husband be the leader of the home. I think I know what what she's saying. You do have to actively submit. You have to put yourself under. So instead of saying, I'm going to let God lead me, Maybe better to say, I'm going to submit. I'm going to put myself under his leadership. We can easily deceive ourselves into thinking we're doing God centered theology when really we're doing man centered theology. Sadly, man centered theology has completely corrupted Western civilization, even in countries that still have some kind of vestige of Christianity, like America. Most pulpits this morning will feature man-centered sermons. Most pulpits this morning will feature man-centered sermons. Maybe a text will be read and then the Bible will be closed and off they'll go pontificating about this or that opinion. And once you become trained in loving God-centered theology, you'll see the difference. You'll visit another church, you'll hear a sermon and you'll be like... That is not at all what that passage is saying. I mean, the message will sound great, maybe inspirational, maybe even biblical, but it's not what that passage is saying. And what happens is the, the preacher thinks all week about what he'd like his people to do or to know, come up with these ideas, and then look for a passage in the Bible that kind of goes along with that. That's, that's man-centered theology. So even with the Bible open, you could be doing man-centered theology. So be careful in the morning when you're doing your devotions. Read, read the Word of God. Read it in context. Try to ascertain what exactly God is saying about himself and about you and about the fall and about redemption. 
and submit to that truth. You come to the Word of God to receive, not to impose upon. So all that we've heard about Israel, we're now culminating in 2 Kings chapter 17. It, things have gotten so bad that God has now decided the cup of wrath is overflowing. He's going to punish Israel in a very obvious and national way. Assyria is going to come in, conquer Israel, and take captives out of Israel back to Assyria. So we read in 2 Kings 17, verse 5, Then the king of Assyria invaded the whole land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. For three years wouldn't let Samaria being the capital of the northern kingdom, wouldn't let them go about their normal business of planting crops and harvesting. And it took three years because they had stored up a lot of food. But eventually, Samaria crumbled. And it says, In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and settled them in Hala and Habor on the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. And we know from historical records roughly how many Israelites were carried away. It's not the whole country. But what they would do was carry off the intellectual capital of the country the teachers, the priests, the political figures, the royal family, everybody who has major influence over society carried off to Assyria. And you understand what that would do to a nation. It, it would weaken it. You, you remove all the leaders, all the teachers, anyone who could possibly create some kind of revolution. The people gifted at gathering the people together and teaching them and encouraging them and inspiring them and rallying them. And they leave behind the common folk to just work the land, grow the crops, because it's still useful for Assyria. So really you're reducing your enemy to just a farming town that you can exploit. Now we look at this, and from a man-centered perspective, you'd say, how terrible. And yet from a God-centered perspective, you'd say, how brilliant of God. If a culture has become so corrupt theologically, if you want to start over, you need to remove all that bad theology, all the bad teaching, all the corrupt leadership. Don't get any bright ideas. I know you're thinking about America saying, hmm, who remembers those Tom Clancy novels from the 90s? Did you used to read those? I read those. There was one where um, a terrorist flies an airplane, how prophetic, right, into the state capitol during the State of the Union address and wipes out both houses of Congress, the Supreme Court, and the President. 
And the only one not in the building was Jack Ryan, the vice president. And of course, Tom Clancy, you know, Jack Ryan is Tom Clancy. That's why we write books, right? Because we want to make characters that reflect us or who we fancy ourselves to be. And so the pipe dream was that, well, we've got to start over with Jack Ryan as the president. And he says, I don't want lawyers, I don't want career politicians to replace the houses of Congress. I want plumbers, I want teachers, I want the common folk. This is great. And I remember reading that going, yes, this, this would be the solution to all our problems. And yet, if nothing changed at the heart, it might buy some time, but all the same problems would eventually come to pass. Because the problem is with man's heart. Right? It's not just bad doctrine and bad theology and bad ideas. Where do the bad ideas emanate from? From the heart of man. Second Kings goes on to explain to us why God is punishing Israel. And I'm kind of bringing everything full circle this morning. We've been talking about meta-narrative and God's overarching story. You can really think of meta-narrative as systematic theology. Or remember this term from like a decade ago, worldview. Everybody was talking about your worldview and having a biblical worldview. It's all in the same ballpark. Theology, your theology is your worldview, is your meta narrative. And 10 years from now, some other word will show up in church. And it's all the same thing. I don't know what the next word will be. Maybe we'll come back to theology. Sometimes, if you wait long enough, these words just come back into vogue. But we live in a culture right now that is very interested in talking about story, narrative. And so we strike while the iron's hot and we tell the culture, yes, we know all about story. There's one story that is the overarching story and you need to take your personal story and you need to think about it in a completely different way. You need to look at God's story and interpret your personal story through the lens of God's story. 2 Kings 17, 7. Now this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So a reminder of how mighty and how gracious God was to choose this people, remove them out of pagan worship, bring them to the promised land, purge the promised land of the Canaanites and all their false worship, Give Israel 40 years in the wilderness to completely purge out all their old beliefs that they picked up from Egypt. A fresh generation who knew God, knew His Word, knew His statutes and His judgments. And we're going to move into this promised land. We're going to purge all the idolatry out. I'm going to let you live in houses you didn't build and you're going to eat from crops you didn't plant. And we're going to start an entire new nation that has 
good theology. And then that nation is going to be a testimony nation to the other nations. But it's only going to happen if you do not uh, allow yourselves to mix false theology, false religion back in. Don't worship the Canaanite gods. Don't take their daughters as wives. You'll be tempted to integrate false theology into true theology. It will corrupt the truth. And he says, and, and they feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out. They, they adopted the culture of the nations they were supposed to drive out. And they also adopted the customs of the kings of Israel, which they had introduced. So the wicked kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, not one of those northern kings was ever called good by God. They all did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the people should know better, but they just adopted the teachings of their king. They just ran with it. When in Rome... Right? This is the attitude we see among many so-called Christians here in America. Well, got to live in the culture. Might as well give in to the culture. So you can blame the leaders, but you, you also have to blame the followers. Nobody is without excuse. Israel was chosen by God to be a testimony nation to other nations. I want to take you back this morning to Deuteronomy 4. So right before they're going to enter the land of Canaan, and Moses gathers the entire nation, and the book of Deuteronomy is really the speech that he gave them. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it. It's interesting that it doesn't say you shall not add to the law which I command you, nor take from it. It's no... It's it's no less than the law, but it's more than the law. The word there in the Hebrew, a dabar, word. The, the whole package, the whole story Moses is telling them. In the New Testament, when they refer to Moses, the teachings of Moses, it's the first five books of the Bible. They, they would just refer to it as Moses or the law of Moses. It's not just the Ten Commandments. It's not just the Levitical law. It's the whole story. Because think about laws. Either laws are man-made coming from man's own opinions, or laws are rooted and grounded in God in His character. Laws can't just come out of thin air. They have to be rooted and grounded in something. In our country, we try to root and ground our laws in the Constitution, and the Constitution rooted and grounded in the Bible. 
the Bible rooted and grounded in God. So eventually we get to where the buck stops. In our own nation now, because we've cut God off from the public square, now we have many saying, well, the Constitution, it's just a man-made document, let's replace it. And so we have many in our country who, though we enjoy these laws and the freedom they bring and the protection they bring and the, the, the great nation that we've enjoyed living in, if you cut that off from its source, eventually everything falls apart. The laws fall apart. Laws can be replaced with, with laws that don't make sense. And so this is what God was warning Israel would happen. Do not add or subtract from what I'm telling you today. And think about where the law, where Moses started. Genesis 1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. It's a theology. This is who God is. This is how everything got here. This is who man is. God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created him. A theology of man's purpose. Let man have dominion over, over the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Make families. You have a theology of marriage. You have a theology of families. You have a theology of work. Man was put in the garden to tend the garden. Work isn't evil. Work is good. So these words that Moses is telling them is a complete systematic theology of who God is, who you are, what your role is, how man fell, and how man can come back to God, how God has made a way for man to come back to him. This is what Moses is talking about. It's not just memorize the Ten Commandments and don't add an Eleventh Commandment or subtract one and make a Ninth Commandment. He's definitely saying that, but that's not all he's saying. He's saying, don't add or subtract to the whole story, the whole meta narrative, the whole theology. You take away one part, and the whole thing will fall apart. You can't pick or choose which doctrines you like. You can't pick or choose attributes about God. You see people do that. Well, God is just love, He's also a God of judgment. Well, I don't like that part so much. You can't pick or choose. You, otherwise, you're not worshiping God. It's some other God you've made up in your mind. He's a God of justice and a God of mercy. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God has destroyed from among you all the men who followed Baal of Peor. Look what happens when you follow false gods. God's giving them a warning. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them. Keep and do. It's not do and do. Keep and do are different, different concepts. Keep, believe them, Trust them, study them, embrace them, and then obey them. Keep and do. 
For that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. You see, this is one of the purposes that God called Israel to be his special chosen nation and gave them the law of Moses. You're going to be a nation where other nations will look at you and look at the blessed life you live in the land and say, Wow, look at that wise and understanding people. Where did they get such wisdom and understanding? Isn't that what drew people to this nation ages ago? Wow, America a land of of wisdom and understanding and prosperity and freedom. And we take these things for granted because we live them every day. But get outside the bubble and go to some other nations and it's a a mess out there. The, The laws are arbitrary and judges are corrupt. And beliefs are crazy. You take India, for example. At last count, they have over three million gods. It's hard enough keeping one god happy. Three million gods. People wanted to move here, and they they came here, and they would sacrifice life and limb to get here because they wanted to know what is the source of this great wisdom and understanding and we used to tell them. I used to sit in my little first grade classroom in Stockton and we would start the morning and my teacher on the piano, we, we would sing Hymns. Same songs that I sang at church. Hmm. My Sunday school teacher was a former nun. (laughs) And their family were great family friends of ours. They were like second parents to us. They didn't have children of their own. So they were very fond of kind of being surrogate parents to other children. Praise God for that quote-unquote second set of parents that we all had, and probably many of you had, an extra mom or an extra dad. Other people who believed the same thing your parents believed and would reinforce it. It's what we attempt to do here, baby dedication days. We ask the parents to dedicate their babies to the Lord. Then we ask the congregation, will you help in as much as God gives you opportunity to teach this child the gospel, the Bible, and to live it and model it? We're building a theology into a new human being. That's what we're doing here. We're teaching theology. We're living it. We're modeling it. We're not putting our theology in a little box on Sunday morning and then setting it aside the rest of the week. We have to take that theology with 
us everywhere. Let it saturate our entire lives. And so Israel was supposed to glorify God and be this testimony nation by having good theology which would result in this wise and understanding living as a contrast to all the craziness that was going on outside its borders. And at the height of their kingdom, under King David and then Solomon, people were flocking to Israel, right? To hear the wisdom of Solomon, to hear this biblical wisdom, to see this wise and understanding people. And all the material blessings that often come with that. The gorgeous temple and this amazing society. Secondly, Israel was supposed to glorify God by their loving relationship with God. So it wasn't just head knowledge. It wasn't just theology in the head. It was supposed to move to the heart. Deuteronomy 4, 7, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, the personal name of God, the Lord our God, whenever we call on Him, God is close. This is different than other nations and their false gods. They're distant gods. They're aloof gods. They're gods that I don't know how to please these gods. We light incense. We say prayers. We don't know if they make it to the gods or not. Our God is close. He is personal. Emmanuel, God with us. Christ came in the flesh and He dwelt among us. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, dwells inside of us as believers. Our God is close. This is a light to the other nations. Who is this God that is so personal that they can go to Him in prayer any time? Why would you turn in that God for a bogus counterfeit? Thirdly, Israel was to glorify God by keeping the laws, the actual laws, because those laws were rooted in the character of God. Other nations had laws. It's not like Israel made up the concept of laws. It's just that this was the first nation where their laws were rooted and grounded in God and in His character. And so, the idea being that the other nations would look at Israel and say, or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law? Which I am setting before you today. Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. It's not a given just because you have the law of God that it's going to stay with you. You have to be diligent to read it to keep it, to study it, to understand it, to obey it, and finally to teach it to the next generation. It's, it's what we do here. 
It's why we have Sunday school at both services. It's why we have ABF groups. It's why we have Heritage Oak School here. It's why we have VBS. It's why we have Awana. It's why there's men's Bible studies and women's Bible studies. Because the fallenness of our heart is that strong that if you take your foot off the gas in your sanctification and in making disciples, you will inevitably replace good theology with bad, man-centered theology. It's not about just getting people to mentally assent to the gospel, to make a profession of faith, and then, they're saved. Game over, done. I'm done with my work here. No. Jesus said, make disciples. Baptize them and then teach them to do what? Teach them to do what? Obey all that I have commanded. All of it. The whole theology, the whole meta-narrative, the whole worldview. It does no good to convert someone and then throw them back into the wild. They profess Christ, but their whole theology looks like the world's. And you end up with worldly churches and worldly Christian homes to the point where you're not even sure if we can call them Christian anymore. There's something. That's not what we've been charged to do. What would happen if Israel failed to keep this covenant? Let's skip to Deuteronomy 4.23. So watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which He made with you, And make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. Look, don't think graven image there as just a little wooden carved idol. Read that more closely. And make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. You can make a graven image philosophically. Well, God taught me this, but I have a different idea. That's a graven image. That's an idol. God says, this is man's problem. I don't think so. I think man's basically good. And he, he's just raised in a terrible environment, and that's why people do terrible things. You know, you hear that all the time, and I think that's the overriding belief system in our country, that man is basically good, or that you're born a blank slate, right? The tabula rasa. And if we just put people in the right homes and in the right schools, we could fill the blank slate with, with the good, and people will just be good. had the privilege of raising four children, and I can tell you that it's ludicrous. Jennifer and I tried. (laughs) They just figured out how to sin on their own. It's almost like they were born sinners or something. And if you come to that conclusion on your own, even though it's the right conclusion, you're still doing man-centered theology. But if you believe that we're born sinners because the Bible says we're born sinners, now you're doing God-centered theology. 
And so it's not that we're going to see wholesale rejection of God-centered theology replaced with man-centered theology. That doesn't work that way. That's not the way the devil works. He works more subtly. We go from God-centered theology to, well, I don't need the Bible to teach me that anymore because I know it. So for a while, our country or our church or you as an individual might have good theology, but it's no longer rooted and grounded in the Bible. It's just rooted and grounded in tradition and creeds. And then the next generation says, well, I'm not so sure about that. That was dad's theology or mom's theology. And it's not popular at school. I'm going to get teased. I'm going to get mocked. I'm going to get rejected. So I will change my theology just enough that I can still make mom and dad happy in the home and and fit in at church, but I can also fit in at school. And the drift continues. Heard heard this story from Al Mohler where he was saying a, a friend of theirs raising their child in the church go to Sunday school, they go to Awana, all that. Good little Baptist. He's 10 years old. He comes home. They're having a family discussion around the dinner table about this issue of transgenderism. And the 10-year-old son says, Dad, that's hate speech. Zoiks. <laughs> and he meant it. Yeah, you can't say that. That's hate speech. So they're bringing the kid home. And they're going to go through the process of retraining his mind to think biblically with the scriptures open. And if the boy wants to eventually say, well, if God says that, then God is guilty of hate speech, then he will have to answer to God for that. That'll be between that young man and God. But what can we do on our end is to not disconnect people from the Bible as they're developing their theology. Be careful when you're having conversations with people that it doesn't come off as your opinion. Because your opinion is just one more opinion in a sea of opinions. Know your Bible. Have your Bible open. People need to know that this truth is coming from the source of truth. Look what would happen... If they did this, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you out. Isn't that what's happening in 2 Kings 17? Drove them out, scattered them among the nations. And yet, and yet God is merciful and faithful. I gave my uh, thumb drive to Dave back there. He loaded the slides on the computer. He saw the title, and he's like, God judges Israel. Ooh, this sounds like, you know, (laughs) it's going to be kind of a downer of a sermon here. No. We need the full picture of, of God. He's a God of judgment, but he's also a God of mercy. He says this, but from there... You will seek the Lord your God. See, God is using the the judgment as punishment for sin, but also discipline to bring the sons of Israel 
back to Him. Some people only see the judgment and some people only see the mercy. You need to see both. And you need to hold them in tension. That's where faith comes in. Well, is he a God of judgment or is he God of mercy? Yes. How does that work? It does. I try to pull it off at home. I don't do so well with my own kids. But I I continue to strive for that standard. To be firm and consistent in my discipline and yet merciful. Sometimes when I'm tired and lazy, I pretend I'm being merciful by not following up on the punishment. I like to fancy myself as merciful when really I'm just being lazy. I don't have time to discipline him. God, Dad's so merciful. God isn't lazy. He's very calculated about His mercy. You will find Him if you seek Him with all your heart and with all your soul when you are in distress and all these things come upon you. In the latter days when you turn to the Lord your God and obey His voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful God, He will not forsake you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant of your fathers which He swore to them. You can, you can come home like the prodigal. You suffer the consequences of your disobedience and rebellion, but you can come home. You can return to God. And he's not sitting there with an I told you so attitude. We see in the prodigal son, he runs out to meet his son. Now, Israel was to do all of this out of love was to do all of this out of love. Right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, without love, everything's just a banging gong and a noisy symbol. And we're so familiar with this passage in Deuteronomy 6.5, but you, you, you keep reading Moses' speech, and he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and as frontals on your forehead. So everything you do and everything you think, not literally. Some of the Jews took this literally and would put scripture in a box and strap the box to their head and on their wrists. In the New Testament, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for their big, giant phylacteries, the the box of Scripture. My box is bigger than your box. Therefore, I love God more than you. You shall put them, um, write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, so when people come in and when they go out, they hear good theology, Scripture-saturated theology in the way you talk and in the way you worship and in the way you live. God-centered theology is to saturate our daily existence. This is how you love God. You dwell on the truth. You believe in the truth. You love the truth. You live the truth. And then you teach the truth to others. This is how we worship and love God with all our hearts. 
Finally, Israel was to glorify God by being wholly separate and humble. You've got to be humble about all this. He reminds them in Deuteronomy 7, 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. Holy, separate, set apart. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for Himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. And before you get a big head on you, the Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For actually, you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you. And because He would keep the oath which He swore to your fathers, to Father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There you go. If, if you know Christ as your Savior, if God is your God, if Yahweh is your God through faith in Jesus Christ, it's because He chose you, not because you were better than other people, not because you had better theology, not because you were better looking, not because of your family heritage, not because of even the sincerity of your heart, but because He decided to love you. He decided to love you. That keeps us humble. God first loved us, right? We love God because He first loved us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were hostile to the truth, while we were walking around doing man-centered theology and pretending we were God, God chose to love us, died for us on the cross to pay for our sins. That's the gospel. That is the gospel. And so... Putting your faith in Christ isn't less than believing that He is God, that He died on the cross for my sins and was raised the third day. It's certainly not less than that, but it's the whole ball of wax. It's making Jesus your Savior and Lord. Acknowledging He's Lord. I'm not Lord anymore. As a matter of fact, I never was. Shame on me for living life as if I were Lord. Shame on me for thinking I'm God. Shame on me for interpreting the world according to my own wisdom instead of God's. This is what we're guilty of. Jesus came to forgive us for that and then start changing our whole outlook on life. When you go back to 2 Kings 17.24, you see that Assyria allows people from other nations to come back into Israel and repopulate Israel. And those became the Samaritans. So now you know where the Samaritans came from when you read your New Testament. They, they intermingled with the Jews who were left there by Assyria, and so they were a mixed race. They weren't purebred Jews. And in Jesus' day, the, the people with a pure Jewish bloodline couldn't stand the Samaritans. They wouldn't even walk through Samaria. They, they would go all the way around. They wouldn't let them come and worship at the temple. And these are the teachers of 
Israel, they should know their own Old Testament that Israel's supposed to be what? This testimony nation. They can't even testify to their closest neighbors. Remember when the scribe asks Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? And tells him the story about the Good Samaritan. You know, how, how convicting. You mean those people that we hate? That's our neighbor? Yes. You're supposed to be testifying to them. John, the apostle whom Jesus loved, like his closest friend, once asked Jesus as they were passing through Samaria, Lord, should I call down fire from heaven to consume these wicked people? And Jesus said, no. (laughs) No. In fact, we're going to pass through here, and while you guys are looking for food, I'm going to go talk to this Samaritan woman at the well, this adulteress, scandalous. And after revealing some things to her that only God could know, she puts two and two together and says, you you must be some kind of prophet. And she says, then... It says, Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? A Jew would never ask a woman for a drink from the well. That would be scandalous, let alone a Jewish woman. This was a Samaritan woman. For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Your heart will be in the right place, and your theology will be in the right place. Spirit and truth. Not spirit or truth. It's a complete package. God has changed me from the inside out by the gospel, and he he is now replacing all my bad theology with good theology. We're going to worship in spirit and in truth. This is the call of the Great Commission. I'm going to end on this slide, Dave. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. If you're confused about your marching orders, this is what you're to do as Christians. You put your faith in Jesus Christ. You're saved now. And you begin the process of sanctification, eradicating bad theology, replacing it with good theology, And then you're looking for other people to evangelize, to tell them the good news. And then by whatever opportunity that God gives you, invite these people to hear the story of, of God and replace their wrong stories with the right story. Replace their bad theology with good theology. Folks, this takes time. And you have to get involved in people's lives. And it gets a little messy but it's worth it. Praise God, He did that for you, and now we can turn around and do that for 
others, but you won't be able to do it if you don't like studying theology. So, stop thinking as theology is for the seminarians and the theologians and the people in the ivory towers. You already have a theology. Is it a good theology? If it's not, you need to replace it with the right theology. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being truth and for revealing truth to us and forgive us for replacing your truth with our own truth, replacing your story with our story, replacing your worldview with our worldview, Lord. Holy Spirit, convict us of this sin and enlighten the eyes of our heart to see truth, to embrace it, to love it, to believe it, to live it, and then care enough to teach it to others. And this will bring you much glory, God, and it will bring us much good and happiness and joy. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. God bless you.